0: This is episode 58 of the Just Get Started podcast, and my guest today is the co founder and CEO of Chili Piper, Nikolai Vandenberg. Let's get it started.
1: Just get started.
0: Hey, gang, and welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey. Excited to have you here for a chat today with four-time founder and current co-founder and CEO at Chili Piper, uh, Nikolai Vandenberg. Um, his name is spelled N-I-C-O-L-A-S-V-A-N-D-E-N-B-E-R-G-H-E. And had a great chat with Nikolai around his journey and and some of the situations um, that he got himself into, a lot of learning um, through that process um, in in terms of just, you know, how you work with um, early stage startups, you know, investors, you know, how you have to pivot. So a lot of great conversations I know a lot of y'all are thinking about or maybe have gone through already um, so you might glean some insight and uh, advice from uh, Nikolai. But yeah, the, the current platform Chili Piper is a buyer enablement tool where if you guys think the easiest way to think about it is someone come to your website, um, a lot of times there's just a form there for someone to fill out. Um, now it's a little more reactive where you know you have to reach out to them and you know the, if anyone's in sales, you know that cat and mouse game that we have to play um, to get in touch with someone because people are busy, right? This allows that buyer coming to the website to actually schedule a meeting And set up some time so you guys actually can connect right away. Um, And it helps create a little bit more urgency and also um, have some better conversations, I think, up front. So take a look at that. Um, Go check out their website, chilipiper.com, C H I L I P I P E R. I think you guys will absolutely enjoy the uh, conversation with Nikolai. So let's jump right into it. Without further ado, my chat today with Nikolai Vandenberg. Let's get it started. Nicholas, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining today. Thanks for having me. So I'm excited to get in and and really learn about your story and and have you share some stuff. And I always like to kind of start at the, you know, sort of beginning. Um, You know, I'm always curious, especially growing up, you've obviously, you know, grown and sold businesses and obviously you're active with, uh, with Chili Piper right now and we'll get into that. But growing up, did you have the mindset of wanting to grow a business, want to start business. Like what, you know, the question of like, what do you want to be when you grow up? What was that for you in in kind of childhood adolescence kind of coming into your, your own there? So not at
1: all. Actually, I was not exposed to entrepreneurship, uh, uh until much later in my life. I grew up in uh, Marseille, the South of France. My dad, uh, some call, some kind of a uh, administrative officer in a small company. And, um, I knew nothing about entrepreneurship, and um, but what I did have is this drive to always uh, try new things, uh, travel new places. So when I was fourteen, I hitchhiked across France and took twenty-seven different rides uh, all around the country. So I had this kind of adventure uh, uh, gene in me, but I knew nothing about entrepreneurship. I actually think that there many different roads to entrepreneurship. Like people, some people do it because they want to make a lot of money. Some people do it because they don't want to have a boss. Uh, in my case, it came because I want to create things. I want to explore new territories and, 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 uh, and um, create new, new products or new businesses that didn't exist before. And that, that gene for sure I had when I was a kid. Um, it's only much later that it uh, became uh, Express itself as as, as an uh,
0: entrepreneur, um, an entrepreneurial venture. And so, how did you get exposed to that eventually? Because obviously, like I said you, you've sold a couple businesses already, um, and I think was the, the first one was it around kind of the late '90s or so, if I recall.
1: Yeah. So um, it's very simple. Uh, uh, I was very fortunate uh, to after my uh, at my first trial, I was fortunate to get accepted at Stanford Business School. So I kept applying. They kept denying. And eventually, they let me in. And uh, it was mid-'90s. And uh, my plan was to travel. As I said, at the time, I knew nothing about entrepreneurship. So I applied to Stanford because it looked like it was a nice campus where I had fun and it was sunny. And in my application, I said, well, next, I want to move to uh, Asia. And when I landed uh, on the campus within the first three weeks, um, I started meeting all these alumni with started companies um, and it seemed completely fascinating to me. And then um, shortly after, Steve Jobs came on campus and Steve Jobs at the time, so it was 1993 or four, um, was at the worst time of his career. He was doing this company called Next uh, which was going nowhere fast. Um, and yet seeing hearing him talk about how he was building something and even if it was not successful the experience he was going through I thought wow well, that's what I want to do uh, I want to be like this guy I want to be like these other entrepreneurs that uh, I've been exposed to and uh, um, I decided that I would stay and this was going to be uh, what I was going to do so I did stay in, in the Bay Area and um I just started looking for opportunities to uh, start a company because it's, it's, it had become a, obvious to me that's what I wanted to do. At the time, I was fortunate to uh, be introduced to John Scully, which is ironic because I was inspired by Steve Jobs. And then I met Steve, John Scully, who uh, was the person who had fired Steve Jobs. And um, we, I had helped a friend with a... Uh, uh, with an invention, the technology around the digital imaging. Um, and so the three of us got together and said, well, that's an opportunity to do a, a, a new business around um, digital imaging for consumers. So it was the mid-90s. It didn't exist at the time. And let's build a software for, like, Photoshop for dummies, kind of, so software for for consumers. And I thought, awesome, that's, that's what I'm going to do. I said, and that so that was my first company, which was called LifePix. I grew it... Um, I took us a year to build the software. I did $6 million in revenues the second year and $10 million the third year. So it was, it was a great, great way for me to get started in the world of entrepreneurship. Definitely very, very, uh, very
0: successful and very exciting. That's, that's how I got going. Was the plan when you guys walked into it to you know, exit in a few years and try to sell it? Or was it to grow into a big business? Did you, did you have those conversations early on with, uh, with John and, and the team? Uh, we did not have these conversations,
1: and um, um, for me it was just I wanted as I said create something, I want to get started, create something. Um, I was actually s- surprised um, about eighteen months into it, we we had an offer to buy the company for twenty million, and then a bit later, another offer to buy the company for fifty five million. Um, because at the time consumer software was hot, and um the board and john and John's colleague decided to decline that offer, and I was looking around me and by by then it was nineteen ninety eight and uh everybody in San Francisco was starting the dot com right or oh, it's just an internet related company and then I thought this is crazy um uh, uh this is what I should be doing uh we should take that offer and, and 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 then I should be in the internet. It's uh, so much more exciting. It's such a bigger opportunity. So I sold my shares in, in that uh, first startup to the existing shareholders and I started a, a, an internet company. But um, it was opportunistic. I, I I just thought there's a better opportunity with the internet uh, and therefore I should sell. There was no master plan when, when they started the first company and how far we would go. It was really a matter of... Uh, how far how well is it doing at uh, there other opportunities that are more compelling and, and that's what happened so i started my second company and what i did is that uh, i took all the money i just made and doubled down right a bit like uh, gambling in vegas where you don't know when to stop so i put all the money in and uh, 13 months later i had an offer from cnet to buy the company for $60 million. And because I put all my money in it, I had, uh, I had 72% of, uh, of the company myself. So I was facing a $42 million uh, payday, fa- facing, in theory, because in the end, um, the crash happened just before we closed that deal, and the deal uh, collapsed. So the deal didn't happen. It was my second startup. Uh, I found myself uh, 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 facing the uh, nuclear I suppose it was a nuclear spring, because it's February two thousand when the, the the market started tanking and and then from there every investor door started closing, and in the end I did the uh, in, in late 2000 I did the deal with Microsoft, so Microsoft acquired my second company. Uh, but they paid really well. They let me uh, wait and, and, and get more and more desperate until they knew they could just get me on the on the very cheap. So that was my second uh, second entrepreneurial experience.
0: What was the? You know, I've had some folks on that have you know kind of were around that time the uh, in terms of starting businesses and being involved around the the dot com boom and bust. I guess you can call it. What was the self talk you went through? Because you obviously you had. I mean, that's you know forty five million to yourself on the table, and then it gets kind of the carpet gets pulled out from on you. what did you go through how how did you deal with that that process
1: yeah so it really felt like uh collective craziness like all reference points have been lost uh, i different, uh, so the neighbors are on, on I was I used to live on Russian Hill in, in San Francisco and then the neighbors come back and say I've just made five million dollars on, on the dot com, uh, I was an investor and they just uh, went out, another friend who uh, started a company called Jungly that got bought by Amazon for 40 million dollars, so it, it, it's, it's something crazy and by then it became a bit abstract right? it seems like and, and when the the bomb started to happen, uh, nobody could believe it. So everybody was in denial. Uh, it was just, it was impossible. We had gone through, you know, three or four years where where money was just coming uh, super easily and it was—it was—it was, it had become impossible to believe it could stop. But then, of course, it did stop. Uh, so I found myself, but, but so it, it's important to know that this $40 million was quite abstract for me. It, it, it didn't feel like I'd worked hard and, and no, I'd earned that money and it was time to put it in the bank. It felt like there was this craziness and it was absolutely normal to get $42 million and I, I didn't really feel that way it is. But what, what, what hit hard is that I had to lay off half the company. So we had grown to 65 people and, uh, and as I mentioned earlier, uh, all investors' doors had closed So I could not continue funding uh, the company. I had to lay off half the employees on a single Friday. So we went from 65 to 30 people. And that was very, very hard. Right, And then when Microsoft uh, acquired the company, they further uh, made me reduce the staff down to 16. So that really felt like like a, a painful process. Uh, the 40 million that we have struck uh, was something, but actually facing uh, you know uh, 35 people uh, one after the other, telling them they, they no longer have a job it was definitely a, a strong experience. So what happened is that uh, we shut down, and then I called a friend and um, I decided to go and. To a country where people are more miserable than I am. So I went to Nepal, where you know you can't complain about being poor, the level of poverty there. And we went trekking in the mountains, and, and that's how I clear my mind from the whole experience. You know, put things in perspective with people who couldn't afford to buy a, a bottle of Coke because that was too expensive for them. You know, and you look at my situation and think, look, this is not real misery, uh, not to have $42 million in my bank account. Everything is good. Nature is beautiful. And I um, I rebuilt my energy that way. And then when I came back, I decided to move to New York. Uh the time with, with the dot bomb, it seems that Francisco was, San Francisco was not going to recover. And I thought I might as well go to a different place and experience new things. So um 2001, I moved to New York and I've been in New York ever since.
0: So I want to fast forward a little bit and we can go back, uh, you know, to, to the other business as well um, from a time standpoint. But I want to go because I'm curious about, you know, what what started as floating apps that you started. Right. Yeah. And I want you to share the story, if you don't mind, because I know a little about it of, of kind of you guys are doing pretty well, right? And then life happens. And, right. Exactly. And, right. So, can you talk about one starting floating apps? The, the vision behind why that idea was important to you, like where you came up with that, and then also obviously what happened with the. I think some of your competitors got bought, and and kind That's of right. that all happened.
1: Yeah, no, uh, uh, amazing story of a uh, of markets turning on on me. So, I. Uh, um, I was to take a step back and, and um, go a few years before I started floating apps. Um, as I said, I just love creating things. But I was in between projects. And a friend of mine came and said, uh, I'm doing a startup. And we have $2 billion in funding. And I thought, well, what kind of startup is, is that? And it's like $2 billion. And um, it was a hedge fund guy who was trying to go after disrupting the telecom market. Um, and I thought, you know, I want to be part of this adventure. I want to see what it's like to start a company with uh, billions as opposed to millions. So I interviewed with the founders, and, and they brought me on board as a VP of Sales. And um, I tried to get the sales team to use Salesforce, the application, and it got a lot of resistance. So I was very surprised that that uh, you know it was 2011, 2012. There were the software that was supposed to be the best for salespeople was still so backward in terms of usability, in terms of of, of uh, ease of adoption. So that was my first data point. Then something unusual happened. Um, I transferred and become the chief information officer of of the company uh, for different reasons. They had an expertise in, you in, in know, expertise in IT, and 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 it, it turned out that. Uh, that it was a critical part, so I took that job, and I, uh, I I've written a blog post about it. Uh, I had this bad experience with Oracle, uh, you know, refusing to renegotiate a deal because they uh, they locked us in for five years before I joined, and and, uh, and they were not going to uh, change anything. And and it felt wrong. So I I wrote a blog post that I said, you know, why uh, getting screwed by Oracle uh, inspired me to start a company? Because at the time I thought this this world is going to change. Uh, Software companies will not be able to do that anymore. They will not be on these long contracts. It will be all cloud-based. People will switch from one to another. And the whole dynamic is going to change. Then it turned out that the telecom company lost its license to operate. So there was... And unfortunately, the, it turned out that the, the, the spectrum was too close to the GPS spectrum, and 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 uh, it was interfering with the the planes and missiles of the US Army. So that was a bit of a problem. So they lost their license. And I thought, okay, uh, I put all the pieces together. Look, obviously, the world of sales is going to change. The software that salespeople are using is already outdated. Um, This is a huge space. I should should start in in that space. So I started floating apps. And the the idea of floating apps was to to start with the number one problem, at least as I saw it, which is that uh, salespeople are asked to put data in a CRM and it's very uh, labor intensive and is provides no value for them. So I thought, I'm going to build a system that is intelligent and go into their email, their calendar, their phone records, get the data, make sense of it, and update the CRM automatically. So that was this, yeah, intelligent uh, activity uh, data capture. And that made a lot of sense to me. I started it. We started building. Uh, we actually had this idea of doing a freemium model uh, and we actually acquired hundreds of of, of companies on, on it quickly. Then I found that two other companies had the same idea, which is not unusual, often ideas mature in different places. One company was uh, based in Israel, in Tel Aviv, a company called Implicit. And another company was based in San Francisco, a company called RelateIQ. Um, the latter, RelateIQ, decided that this Intelligent data capture is so important that it can be um, it, 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 it can be a competitive advantage to build a new CRM that will actually be much better than what's out there. So instead of a, of a building a front-end and integrating with Salesforce, they say we're going to kill Salesforce. And they actually claim on their website this is the death of a CRM, this is the beginning of a relationship intelligence, uh, thanks to this intelligent data capture. So that was a very bold move. They raised, uh, I think, something like $65 million. Um, A few months later, some VP at Salesforce decided to buy the company in Israel, this company called Implicit. uh, I think for something between 20 and 30 million. So that was problematic, right? Because the big, big player in my space, Salesforce, had bought uh, my competitor. And then Mark Benioff decided to buy the other competitor, really take you for uh, 390 million. Uh, so, next thing they, you know, all my competitors went up part of Salesforce. So, uh, there was a bit of a problem in my plan. And, and it's interesting because uh, I remember one of my angel investors saying, uh, Nicola, you cannot bet on Salesforce. Um, Misexecuting, right? You, you, you cannot have a plan where your plan is uh, all Salesforce is not meant to execute well, so i going to succeed. That's not a viable uh, plan. So I had to just uh, reinvent the company. Uh, and yeah, it's something that I don't think happens very often where the key player buys not only one, but two of the other competitors. But that's what we're facing uh, at the end of 2015 so to reinvent the company, that, what, what we did is, is that, okay, we need to find, so it's, it's actually a very difficult thing to do when, when you start a company and you don't achieve uh, momentum or, or you run into this kind of a misfortune, like it happened to floating apps. Because you go back to investors and say, I know you gave me money, or I know somebody gave me money, and I know it didn't work out, but we're going to try again. Uh, it's just not very compelling as a story. So what we knew we had to do was actually find a revenue generating business as, soon, as fast as possible and just get into business. Um, so that's when we, we restarted the company, we renamed it Chili Piper and we focused on, on the, uh, a narrow need. At the time it was uh, scheduling for teams. So the ability for prospecting teams to easily schedule and book meetings for their account executives. We found the company. uh, That problem was brought up to us by by a company in San Francisco called Five Stars. They say this is an acute problem to distribute these meetings uh, that nobody has solved. I went to Saster, I think it was January 16. Mm -hmm. uh, I interviewed about, I don't know, 10 to 20 companies. to say, hey, do you have this problem between your prospecting team and your sales team? And more than half said, yes, absolutely, it's, it's, a, it's a nightmare. And so, okay, there's a real problem there. We're going to go solve that problem. And we narrowly focused on that problem. We were able to build the product uh, in three months. And uh, in April, we closed our first deal, the company, well, our second deal, because Five Stars was already um, committed to buying the solution. We, we closed our greenhouse uh, the ATS company in New York. And from there, we were in business. We started, uh, uh, you know, selling to all these cool tech companies who had told me that they had this problem, and, and we were very really, uh, eager to solve it. So that's how we got started in, the, in that business. And that, that's how Floating Ass became a uh, Chili Viper.
0: And what happens with, so you had like 400 companies signed up or so with Floating Ass. What happens to those? Did, did, they, did you still continue for a little while, or did you just say, hey, we're closing the doors? Like, How does that work?
1: Yeah, the, both. We continue a while and close the doors, right? We, we uh, deprecated it. So we, we announced that we were going. Uh, it, was, it was a very valuable service. So they were very disappointed. But we couldn't afford to maintain the, the service. So we, uh, I think we, we phased it out over five months from there. So we said, look, by, at the end of May, it will no longer be running, uh, so you, you'll have to transition, and and we phase it out, yeah. And
0: I want to talk about Chili Pipe a little more, but I'm curious, too, and obviously you have a lot of experience, you know, starting companies, leading companies. Is there anything you've learned over the years that has been helpful for you to actually be a good leader? Because obviously when you start hiring new people, you know, it's different when it's just one or two you know, folks banging on the keyboard, right? But when you start bringing in a lot of other folks, a lot of other departments, how did you manage the scaling of some of these different businesses?
1: So, so, um, uh, there's something I strongly believe that people have to love what they do. And often people are... um, Mistaken on on what their job should be or, or what they they want to do, and, and then do you think I have a, a talent in spotting what people are really good at? Um, so very often I'd hire somebody and and, and put them in a position. Uh, it just happened actually at Chili Piper. I'll mention that example. Somebody applied for a sales development rate job, right? Fails uh, or, or test to get that thing. And I've just hired him as product manager. We get the, the guy we thought he should be in sales because he thought it was a good way to make money and so on. And he had this incredible talent in in understanding products. Um, he had not thought of making it um, his profession. Um, but it was clear, to me, it was clearly the way to to, to get it done. So um, I think when you start the company, it's super important to... to Spot these talents and, and I go with talent over experience anytime. Uh, you have to spot these talents and put the right talents in the right places. I remember by my second company that, that when I was offered by CNET for $65 million, the CTO was an intern who was so talented that he grew from intern to CTO uh, within a year. Um, and I could tell he just he was just this kind of person who had it in him—and and I helped him grow into that CTO role. So, at the, at, in the early days of the company, um, that's that's, in my view, the most um, uh, efficient way to 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 get going, which is to be able to to spot talent more than experience and and place the talent in the right place. Then, then you pass the threshold. So, the the first threshold were around. 10 to 20 people where you can no longer have everybody as direct reports. So you have teams. And then there's another threshold when you get to 50 to 60 when you need departments, right? So you you you, you need budgets, you need departments, you need to pass that level. Um, so that's more along the line of scaling. Um, how, how, how do you get there? And that changes the game quite a lot because all of a sudden you need people who are not only talented at executing, but also uh, capable of uh, managing a department, so you're going to be looking for a, a different uh, profile, um, and uh, but that only that that's only really becomes necessary when you when you hit the threshold of around fifty to sixty people. So so you st- and and the harder part, frankly, I've done it. The harder part is is, is what Peter Thiel say, zero to one, you know, that's the hardest part. When you, you go from nothing to something that does one million in revenues or 1,000 users or so that, that non-existence to being in business is the hard part. Um, and, that, and that's where, the, in my view, the key thing is to be able to spot talent and put them in the right,
0: in the right place. Gotcha. Can we chat about um, getting funding for a minute or two? Sure. Because so I'm curious. Well, two things. One is how do you choose, you know, certain partners in terms of um, different, like, I think you guys are using Flashpoint, if I, if I saw correctly, yeah. fact check me on that. Um, but then how deciding, because you guys bootstrapped early on the first couple of years, and, and then you took that, I think it was 3 million seed um, round. How do you decide to actually get the take that bigger investment? can you talk through some of those conversations that are had internally? How does that process go? And I think that could be helpful for others that, you know, maybe want to get to that point at some point.
1: Yeah. So that's two, two different questions. Uh, one is, uh, when is it the right time to take the, some money and, and how, and, and, and the second question is, how do you choose who to go with assuming that you have the, the luxury of choosing i mean right, the, exactly as as you do
0: have options yeah
1: correct yeah and the reality of startups is often you don't right and you take anybody's money but but it's in, interesting because um what, what i find it doesn't quite work that way you can't just take anybody's money because uh, if you're not attractive uh, nobody's going to give you money and if you're attractive enough then you'll have more than one option uh, that has been my experience in my career. You, you, uh, uh, it's very rare that there's only one person who wants to give you money, generally zero. And if, it's, if there's one, then there's more than one. So you, you do have some choice. So the first question is, is why did we decide to raise money? The, the, the reason was um, we had been operating for two years um, and we'd grown profitably. Um, so, we had been exposed to the market and, and the different needs. And by then, with some um, super exciting ideas of other products that we can bring to market. And, and we had validated uh, you know, our hypothesis of uh, is this product really needed? Uh, how, how will we sell it and all that? So, so we, we had a plan to, 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 uh, for our roadmap that we were very impatient to uh, bring to market. And it was clear that bringing external money would help us. Uh, we, it was possible that we could do that over time, uh, keep bootstrapping. But it was clear that bringing external money um, uh, was a much more effective way to do it, because we could just do it in parallel. So that was our uh, really the reason why we took this money. And it turns out that, that uh, Chili Piper, we are a distributed company. Uh, So, and that's part two. When we rebooted, we said, look, we have to be very uh, frugal. We had two developers in Ukraine and and one uh, tester in Romania um, where the labor is less expensive. So it was working really well for us. And when we started hiring, we we hired, um, we continued hiring in different places wherever we found talent. So by then... um, Oh, most of well, our technical team was in Eastern Europe, and so to the second question, how did we choose uh, who to go with? Uh, we were actually approached by Flashpoint. Uh, they have a strong presence in Eastern Europe, and said, "Look, we have seen what you do. Uh, we love it. We we, we have a, a strong network in Eastern Europe. We can help you recruit there." And since that was our goal, just to grow the product team and engineers, said, "What sounds like a perfect match." Also the uh, the lead investors at Flashpoint uh, actually flew to meet me at the time I was in Paris. He flew to meet me in Paris. To, so he, he, I could tell that he was the kind of person who was um, willing to help and willing to invest his time and, and energy. So it felt like a good match. I mentioned my first company uh, when uh, it was consumer software and with this offer to for the company to be bought. And the board refused and then, Dealt with the board um, that didn't share my views at the time because uh, I really wanted to sell the company. That I think it was the right move. And so going forward, I thought you know if I bring somebody on the board of my company, I want to make sure that um, I would not say the shared vision, but I'm sure that I'm comfortable that this person is going to is is, is uh, I'll be able to get along well and we'll have the same way of looking at things that's a good way to think with it. We have the same ways of looking at things and that's what I felt with uh, the partner at uh, Fleshmont is a gentleman called uh, Michael and that's what I felt with Michael is, is, is that you know he's, he's, he's looking at the world the same way and, uh, and I think we'll be uh, well aligned when we have to make important decisions so that's the second part of the question how did we decide it was a combination of a finding the, the right partner to be on the board and, and the right value added uh, that could be provided because they had this network in Eastern Europe that was critical to us.
0: So what about if we look at, I don't want to use the word negative, but that's I can't think of a better word for right now, but the the, the kind of failures you've had, right? It, yeah. What have you learned? What are areas you stubbed your toe where you've kind of learned from? I know you you mentioned kind of being on the board and or the board, you know, decide not to sell. Sometimes you don't have control over that stuff, but are there things you've been actually a part of that maybe haven't turned out as you wanted that you've learned from and and are now, you know, hopefully maybe doing something different? Well, I'll tell you something funny. Uh, After
1: uh, I uh, had this offer from CNET for $60 million, then the deal didn't close in 2000. Um, About a year later, I did another startup in biometrics and, um, Eleven, what was it? Yeah, eleven month into it, uh, I got an offer to sell the company uh, for eight million dollars, and I thought, you know, I'm not going to get screwed twice, and I sold. So I uh, said, I'm not going to miss my exit twice. And I sold the company. So you, um, it's interesting. It was face recognition, and and. Um, uh, so, you can say, well, I've learned my lesson, I'm not going to miss my exit. But I was probably overreacting to sell so quickly, so early. I mean, it worked out well, it was probably overreacting. Overall, I think uh, there's the, the something, uh, both times when when my, uh, companies, uh, like if I look at floating apps where I to pivot, and if I look at uh, the earlier company, it was called uh, Red Cart, where the market fairly. me. Often these things beyond your control right the, the market changes and, and and or somebody gets acquired and and in' not uh, much you can do so what you uh, what you um, what, 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 obviously what you need to do is, is be prepared for that and accept that some things uh, sometimes things are bigger than you and and you should you know, you have to learn to not take things personally. You have to learn to uh, to say this. I guess what you could say, say, I'm not going to call that a failure. It's just how the market can turn out and, and, and there was not much I can do about it. So this, this kind of thing is just... Um, Important for entrepreneurs to understand that they are things that they don't control and, and that uh, and they should accept it's like a serenity prayer, you know, like uh, you want the serenity to accept the things you can change, the courage to change the thing you can, and the wisdom to tell between the two. And it's very. I think the serenity prayer is very much uh, applicable to entrepreneurs. Uh, it's, it's exactly how it should be. You should not stress about the things you can control, you cannot control, but you should definitely act on the thing you can control. And um, th- that actually hard to do uh, because you can get so attached to uh, to what you're doing, but uh, that that would be the main lesson.
0: What are you guys excited about? Maybe the next six months, year uh, with Chili Piper or some other endeavors you guys are doing.
1: Well, as I mentioned, we we uh, we're working on, on some new products. So I I, I, I cannot um, yet. Uh, reveal what these products are but it's, uh, it's um, a it's a new uh, approach to help sales people do their job better and it feel what we're building actually feels so obvious so it's a sign of a good idea that uh, you just wonder why other other people haven't had this idea let me tell you about the, the our current product which is called concierge so um, the um, we were, we were helping sales teams schedule their time. And then um, they tell us, oh yeah, some, 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 that's for the inbound process. And we said, what is your inbound process? Well, somebody comes on the, on the web, on our website. So marketing spends a lot of money. They bring a lot of leads. The leads fill a form on our website and they get a page that say, thank you. Somebody is going to call you. And then it's our job as salespeople to track these people uh, and call them. And said, Well, do you lose some leads sometime? Like, is there, is there some leakage in that process? And the answer was astonishing. Uh, most companies lose more than half their lead that way. So the conversion rates, uh, uh, people would say, No, no, we're doing really well. We have a 40% conversion rate, which means that there is 60% leakage. Uh, so we, uh, we looked at that and said, it makes no sense. Uh, and we built this protocol concierge, a smart assistant. It goes into the form. And when the prospects submit the form, we take the data. We qualify the prospect. We route in real time. And we find the rep that's available to call. Or we find the calendar of the rep for the prospect to be able to book so that instantly um, the prospect is, knows uh, either that he's on the phone with a rep or that he's confirmed to talk to a rep at a certain time. And that seems such an obvious thing to do. Um, doesn't seem obvious to you, uh, Brian?
0: Well, yeah, in, in a sales role, absolutely. That's, that seems very well, obvious. I mean, and, yeah. and, and you just
1: wonder why nobody, no other company had thought of that before us. And to this day, we are the only solution to uh, in the marketplace to solve that problem. So there are times where, where you just, uh, there's something obvious that people are not seeing and when you, you see it, it, it turns into an immediate success. We've just announced that we booked more than 2 million meetings on this consumer solution because we have company uh, booking like thousands of meetings uh, per week. Um, now we have some other ideas on, on helping uh, salespeople that feel the same way because it's completely obvious. I don't know why other people haven't thought of it. Uh, that should come... Uh, around September, October. So um, so the world team and the world company is super excited about, uh, about uh, our future.
0: Well, that's really neat. Yeah, excited to see where you guys go with it. And yeah, it seems like a really cool product. Obviously, I've heard a lot of things um, in the marketplace with it. So uh, excited to see your guys' growth with it. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. I, I really appreciate you sharing your story and, and kind of journey with everyone and uh, hope to stay connected with you. That was great. Thanks, Brian. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that episode or have been enjoying others along the way. Um, and if you don't mind, it'll really mean a lot if you guys head over to iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave me a review. Let me know how I'm doing. Um, give me a rating on there. Um, I certainly appreciate that feedback to make this podcast better each and every episode. Um, and please connect with me online. Instagram's probably the best um, at Brian Andreico, That's B R I A N O N D R A K O. Or go ahead and check out my website, BrianOnDraco.com. That's where I house a ton of random crap like the podcast and my CrossFit journey and a variety of other blog articles. Um, And sign up for my newsletter. Be sending a little bit of uh, inspiration each and every week that uh, may be useful for you. So I certainly appreciate guys listening in. Thanks again. I hope you have a phenomenal week, and we'll talk soon. Started. <phone rings>